Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Cape Town, a superhero podcast about superhero things. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Shunblood. I'm Hannah Mazel. And I'm Ryan Ham. And this week we're talking about Dick Grayson, uh, sometimes known as Robin, sometimes known as Nightwing, but we're going to be covering all of his many incarnations. Uh, and I think we have some surprise hot takes coming your way that I don't even know about. But before we get into those, we are covering this week's news. And there were some like kind of big developments. There were a few big developments finally with the Spider-Man sequel that we've known was happening for a while, but now can actually confirm. There's like some actual casting news on the front. Although I can't tell, do you guys know, was Jake Gyllenhaal confirmed or is he like in talks for the Spider-Man? It came out that he was, like the verbiage that they're using is in talks, which usually is all but con- all but confirmed at that point. Yeah, um, they're just arguing like decimal plates, places for the paycheck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so Kevin Feige has come out and previously said that Spider-Man 2 would pick up immediately after where Avengers 4 ends. Uh, so now, since the reports that Jake Gyllenhaal is joining the cast, uh, they say he's going to be joining, uh, he's going to be playing Mysterio. And for those of you who aren't super familiar with Mysterio. He's this like, um, I guess he's like a special effects artist who uses his skills to torment Spider-Man essentially. Um, so he uses a lot of practical effects and like, just like the classic iteration is kind of ridiculous. Like he, he looks absolutely insane. He has a fish bowl, glass fishbowl on his head and the uniform is like typically outfitted with things specifically for Spidey, like gases that like cancel out his spider sense and stuff, uh, which explains the helmet. So yeah, like it does I, not I, explain the helmet. To be clear, <laughs> <laughs> well, like it just keeps. It just, I guess it just kind of like keeps the gas away from. Him. Uh, it is still absolutely a ridiculous look, but yeah, that was that was like I'm a huge Jake Gyllenhaal fan. So uh, so yeah, like I'm, I'm really excited about where this could go, and it brought up the rumors of like back in the old Sam Raimi. Um, Spider-Man said Jake Gyllenhaal was allegedly supposed to take over for Tobey Maguire, a little fun fact, uh, in the second Spider-Man because uh, there were like reports of Tobey Maguire having a back injury. Um, so yeah, it kind of comes full circle with Jake Gyllenhaal joining this uh, uh, this new iteration of Spider-Man. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty excited. And Michael Keaton's also slated to return. So I think it like kind of gives a little more weight to the potential Sinister Six uh, rumors that we keep hearing about. Like Chris said a few times, and it needs to be stressed that Mysterio is a very ridiculous character that somehow got grafted into the rogues gallery. He looks very dumb, but I'm going to be very disappointed if they don't get Jake Gyllenhaal in a giant fishbowl helmet for this because it's just the character now. But the idea of a guy who's really good at movie special effects being a threatening villain is kind of a hard sell for me. Although Vulture is not an easy sell either, and they worked wonders with him in Spider-Man Homecoming. So I would say I'm cautiously on board. I'm way more interested by the fact that Gyllenhaal would be playing him than I would be otherwise. I think that there are ways that they could play on the torment side of Peter. I'm very very curious on like, I've kind of been thinking about like, what if they actually use the, uh, the barf, the uh, binary augmented retro framing thing that Tony had presented at the beginning of civil war. It was a civil war. Yeah. Where like, they just like use the graphs from his, his mind to like create this like really interactive atmosphere. And I've been curious if they, he would like, kind of use that to his advantage, something like that to his advantage to just like really more like digital tech based to that actual like movie magic type stuff. Yeah. That's what I, I mean, I have like for the modern day, like cinematic experience, I feel like that's the direction that they have to go or else is like, it could just fall flat unless they just like really own the like absolute ridiculousness of it and make it a fun, like a totally fun movie. Um, yeah, I feel like they're going to go more like barfy way versus anything like more practical. <laughs> I was 100% lost when you brought up barf and I did not remember at all that that was what. <laughs> it took me a long time. But that's that's what he calls the thing that at the beginning of Civil War that he uses to like relive his like younger days with his parents, right? Basically like augmented reality. Yeah, he jokes about it like being like using it for therapy and uh yeah. like helping him deal with traumatic experiences. And I just like, I imagine that playing in a way of like, 
Uncle Ben is back or like oh, sure, sure. say like something happens in Avengers where like maybe a mentor or something dies and like, you know, and Mysterio like brings him back. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there, I think there are a ton of ways that they could play with it. Um, but yeah, I guess we'll see. I'm, I'm excited for the casting nonetheless. Uh, all right. What other news do we have this week? I think the big one uh, is that the Disney Fox deal could be in trouble. Oh yeah, that's right. You wrote about that for, uh, for the Facebook page, but I haven't really looked into the specifics. Yeah. So like not to get all dorky, plus I'm not an attorney, so I actually don't understand any of this. Um, so Disney had a deal for Fox that was worth, you know, billions of dollars. Um, but apparently that whole deal was uh, basically the money came in stocks, which I don't really understand how that works, but again, not an attorney. So what might be happening is that apparently Comcast is uh, toying with, instead of doing a stock offer, uh, they'll do an all cash offer that will actually like be more than Disney was going to do for uh, 21st Century Fox. So that has a lot of analysts thinking that that could make the deal a little bit trickier since obviously getting an all cash deal would be a huge bonus and it would be for more money. So Hard yeah. cash, like are we talking like trucks of, of $100? <laughs> How does that work? I mean, yeah, yeah. It actually comes in pennies. Um, no, I mean, I, I assume it's, you know, moving money from one account to another and like at banks we don't know about it's a very exciting wire transfer yeah exactly <laughs> that you so know eventually weird. we'll go through several shell companies and end in the pockets of michael cohen but i Ooh. think that uh <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> we've been pretty good at avoiding politics so far this podcast let's keep it that way. <laughs> Yeah, like this could potentially derail the whole Disney Fox deal, um, which, you know, again, we've talked about kind of ad nauseum on this podcast, like, like intellectually, that is a good thing, I think. But, uh, you know, then there's the part of me that like just wants a Mega Man movie. Um, Not to mention the fact that like, if if I'm going to have to support, like, Comcast would not be my choice is like an anti, like an anti-monopoly savior. No, Um, the worst company in the world yeah anyone who's had to have any kind of interaction with them um you know be it cable or internet or whatever um does not have positive things to say so like it's just weird to see all of this kind of conglomeration because it's not like comcast is a small company i mean i think they still own nbc and so it's not you know it's not as if this you know doesn't create another you know kind of two-headed media monster so it'll just be interesting to see what actually happens with it all so they wouldn't even really be like a the good guys in this situation because they'd just be trading out one monopoly for another, right? Although Comcast isn't as big as Disney, I suppose. Right, right. And I mean, you know, obviously like Comcast, I think has their, like their business is a little more distributed than Disney's where, sure, sure. Um, you know, Disney's primary interest is in the entertainment side and what they could bring under their umbrella. Whereas Comcast would be kind of branching out into, you know, more movie and movie and other media. Yeah. We can get like a live action musical, maybe. I would, oh uh, gosh. <laughs> what if they do like, yeah. What if they do Fantastic Four live on NBC? <laughs> oh. Like from Arrested Development, like starring, they did it. Yeah, star, starring the like third, like third lead from Glee. One of the girls from Heim is Sue Storm, and John Legend as Mister Fantastic. Yeah, exactly. Actually, this is sounding better all the time. I'm, oh. I'm not like <laughs> Ryan's not into it. And Mike, um, Michael Cohen <laughs> is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think as we talked about, like this would probably ultimately be like a good thing for capitalism and for like American democracy, but it would not be necessarily a great thing for people who really want to see an X-Men movie with Wolverine in an honest to goodness yellow spandex costume, which is all of us. So uh, mixed feelings on that one. I guess we'll have to see what happens for people who are interested in tuning in for more exciting legal developments in the comic book world. Just stay tuned. <laughs> We'll be, we'll be the first to report on them. Speaking of legal developments, the uh, there was an actual hire in the Black Widow movie. They pulled in, is it, Ryan, you saw this too. Was it the set designer from the Red Sparrow movie, which we joked about being like a Black Widow movie, like an off-brand Black Widow movie? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it was a set designer, which is interesting because, yeah, like you said, it's 
Red Sparrow, and again, this is fully based on the trailer because I didn't see it. Neither did I think anyone in America. <laughs> I think like 12 um, people saw it total. Yeah. But I mean, it did look like a Black Widow movie. You know, she trains and I think she was even a ballerina. Yeah. I think um, she was a ballerina. Yeah. Yeah. And she like trains as a Russian spy and is like killing people. I mean, I'll rent it. Don't get me wrong. But or you could just wait for the Black Widow movie, the actual on <laughs> yeah. Black Widow movie that's apparently coming out at some point. So when I was looking for news on this, I, there wasn't much confirmation out there. Like this all must be like super fresh uh, because there's really not like much news confirming this. But I did come across an article saying that they had reportedly met with more than 65 directors for this movie. Crazy. Can I you mean, imagine? way to be thorough yeah, that, <laughs> but, is, that is nothing i want to say wow oh uh, i don't know i would love to be like what are what are those conversations even like what are you asking them about i have no idea how many of those 65 directors do you think were like thrown out by you know an underling as a joke uh, <laughs> that, like everyone else didn't understand it took it seriously and they're like well we got to cover our bases or maybe there was just a line of 65 and then the wind picked up and blew them all away and the poured in on an umbrella. It was Michael Cohen. <laughs> I, would, I would imagine they're waiting to officially confirm these movies until after Avengers 4 when they do a yeah. big rollout of Black Widow movie and Eternals movie and Fantastic Four, whatever else they decide that like, they're going to keep us really in the dark on what the next slate of movies are going to be until next year after we see what happens to infinity war part two, whatever they end up calling. That. I hope one of the movies comes out like a Beyonce album and it just like appears in theaters. <laughs> just drops in theaters. Yeah. <laughs> I would be impressed. I'm surprised that they haven't tried to do more of that. Keeping things just like, I would love to be just completely shocked by the way I was by a few things in infinity war, honestly, like a few characters showed up that I just was completely not expecting. Um, yeah. I'd like to see more of that instead of having these ad nauseum, like behind the scenes updates for a year out. So we know, we know everything about this movie before it even lands. It'd be fun to be kind of surprised by a few things. And I think a few of these movies, even the most recent Deadpool movie did a really good job of keeping things under wraps until we actually saw it in theaters. So maybe that's the future of the MCU is more surprises and less uh, really well written. I would appreciate that. I feel like, you know, we talk about news and, you know, I love the news that we get, but I also feel very cheap, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, same. Exactly. It's like, I, I hate that I'm so excited about it. And, you know, admittedly, I wasn't as excited as you guys were about the Mysterio thing. Like, I really don't care that much. But, um, <laughs> God. <laughs> sorry, Chris. I respect you, though, so much. Um, but th these other things, they just tease us with it. And I, I just, I feel cheap. And I would like, you know, not necessarily the same quality, but kind of how Netflix did the Cloverfield uh, movie. I, I know that movie ended up sucking. So, Give us something good, please. But I would like that. Like, treat us with something. We've given you billions of dollars. Like, you know, delight me and surprise me. <laughs> it's got to be so hard to do because there are obviously cameras. Like, they're gonna have they're gonna have to be filming this movie without us any of us officially knowing whether or not you know any any of the characters who uh, died in Infinity War are actually going to make an appearance in the homecoming movie. And some of them may or may not. So, uh, and that's even going to like, that could spoil something unless they just put up a, a 24 seven giant Michael Cohen, Donald Trump sized wall around the filming set. So we'd have no idea what's going on, which would maybe be the best thing for these movies. Cause it would be nice to go into a movie and genuinely not know what's going to happen in it or who's going to show up. Like, what if we just walked into a movie and all of a sudden Jake Gyllenhaal is there as the as as Mysterio? That'd be pretty. As Nightcrawler. <laughs> as Nightcrawler. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, basically, if as long as no one has a Google alert for Scarlett Johansson, Kazakhstan set up, um, <laughs> I feel like they could, you know, film some of this stuff without people knowing. But I'm sure, like, I mean, you know, looking at it from a strictly like, you know, cash point of view, I'm sure Disney has. You know, they have so much money invested in this. I doubt that they're going to be like, trust anyone who tells them to just go ahead with no marketing. Yeah, you're right. You're right. That's true. But even though it would be a lot of fun, I mean, I do think like, I do feel like that could be a possibility at some point. Like Hannah brought up the Cloverfield movie, um, maybe with like one of the Netflix shows or if they get to do a Netflix special or something, um, you know, maybe season two, if they do a season two of the Defenders, maybe that's just an hour and a half movie that drops mm, out of nowhere. I like it. 
That, no? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I just don't I just don't care. Oh, okay. I see how it is. No, I'm kinda with Hannah. I'm like the last holdout on the Defenders because I did kinda like the Defenders show. I didn't even see the Defenders. I was thinking more like Hulu because Hulu's like the dark horse still. And like all of a sudden they're like, Great, we have this mini series on the Great Lakes Avengers and you're like, What? Where'd this come from? Wait, Disney's introducing its own streaming service, so that would be a perfect way to get a bunch of subscribers they could do that yeah they could do that if all of a sudden you know because they have i think they have the rights to blade again yes they do they're like hey come to our disney family streaming service for a hard r blade series (laughs) that seems unlikely uh but i would be pumped to see a little less behind the scenes build up to it one thing that we really haven't like there is there is a obviously dc has not managed their cinematic universe super well so far but i will say that we know very little about this aquaman movie that's coming out in just a few months now and i'm prepared to be surprised the biggest surprise that the aquaman movie could have is that it was actually good but in addition to that there could be character for the hardcore aquaman fans there could be some surprises in there when you said a few months i thought it was like at the end of summer but it i guess so the release christmas yeah yeah Yeah. so it's in december I mean, we're almost six months out and still haven't seen a trailer, which like if you're Avengers, like they push that line a bit. But by now we should have seen something. I'm so surprised that we haven't yet. I really am, too. And I think that's actually smart. They know that I I think they know they're walking on thin ice with the DC universe. So they're probably just trying to manage expectations a little bit. But Aquaman has the benefit of being of having a really good director and um, and a, a low bar. So good luck. To the Aquaman movie. I'm sure we'll all... Uh, have I told you guys about the time I saw Jason Momoa out in California yet? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings oh, us that, into... That'll do it for us. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty great. That uh, brings us into the DC universe, which does bring us to uh, Dick Grayson, who is the character we're going to be talking about today. Uh, we're going to put right off the bat, we're going to put just a red line on the easy jokes about Dick and try to take this character as seriously as possible, I guess, for a character whose first appearance was in Tiny Pants. So Dick Grayson has been around since he was introduced in 1940. Uh, Robin is an extremely iconic character, one of the few superheroes who's a legitimate household name. One thing that I think is really interesting, I want to start the conversation here, is despite being Batman and Robin being an iconic dynamic duo, Robin almost never makes it into any of the television adaptations, the movie adaptations. Even Christopher Nolan's trilogy gave us like a very slight wink at Robin. Why do you think that is? Why are people afraid of bringing Robin into the serious Batman mythos? That's a good question. I think if you're trying to stick true to like the original con- comic adaptation, uh, the idea of trying to sell me on a kid from the circus being able to hold his own against Batman the villains is really hard for a modern day <laughs> audience. Um, at least in something like short form stories like movies where you don't have a ton of time to really sell us on why a rich guy would take this kid under his wing. Uh, I think the movie would solely have to be about their relationship for it to land, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and I just don't think that that's what mainstream people like want the characters or know the characterization of Batman to be these days. I, like, honestly, although like, I don't even think studios know what to do with Batman these days. So it could be a good change of pace for, uh, him to have like Robin, uh, as part of his like new direction, yeah, that's true. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like maybe like do a whole Bat Family thing, but I don't know. I think that that's that's kind of the way I see it. I mean, we tried, they tried with Batman and Robin and having Chris O'Donnell. There were many things wrong with the Batman and Robin George Clooney uh, movie, but uh, we tolerate no no negative talk about Chris <laughs> O'Donnell on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. Even that, it was just like, okay, like we get it. He flips around a lot. Like, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, like there was nothing compelling about that character. So, like, for a Spider Man fan, you sure have a lot of hot takes about other comics, <laughs> <laughs> especially people who flip around a lot. Yeah. Glass house, Chris. Yeah, okay, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think you're right. I think it is, it's a tall order. Um, yeah. The idea of, of Robin. Of a, of a brooding bachelor bringing in a, a very young kid in a lot of the comic book iterations and sending him out there to, to fight very dangerous criminals 
it's a hard sell. And that's probably why one of the few smart decisions that Joel Schumacher made with Batman Forever and Batman and Robin was making Robin just make like seven years younger than Batman instead of 30 years younger than Batman. In terms of Joel Schumacher movies, I actually thought Chris O'Donnell like played a good uh, Robin. I like this take. I like this. No, this is good. um, I'm here for this. The movie itself was terrible um, for so many different reasons. I don't think he was... Actually, I think he was one of the better parts of the movie. And I think it must have been... I think it must have been Batman Forever. I don't know. I can't remember because they weren't good movies. But the scene where Dick Grayson is uh, like remembering him being in the circus and seeing his his family die. I don't know why that was like one of those like scenes that really stuck with me for like years. Do you guys remember that? Like where he's like, Oh, like his origin story. Yeah. In in the films. I don't know why, like that, that distinctly like sat with me as a kid. I'm like, that is like, just like the horror of that and seeing that happening. This is not an endorsement. I want to say that of the movies, but I actually thought that Chris O'Donnell was a pretty good Dick Grayson. If Dick Grayson were, you know, older, but my other opinion is of the Christopher Nolan movies. I actually thought there could have been an opportunity for there to be maybe not like a full, you know, fully realized story with a young Dick Grayson, but like there was, you know, a part of the Dark Knight Rises where, you know, um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who played Robin, uh, was a police officer. But, you know, he was an orphan and like there, I feel like there could have been an opportunity for them to, you know, maybe have Bruce Wayne meet a young orphan who he saw like, like an opportunity for him to be a father figure in a kind of a weird vigilante way. Um, so, yeah, I, I thought like the, the, the Robin part of Dark Knight Rises was kind of like a, you know. It didn't really, <laughs> it was pretty anticlimactic with that. Like at the end of the movie, it's like, oh yeah, my nickname is Robin. It's yeah, like, it was more of an Easter cool. egg too. It was confusing. It was mostly confusing. It was like a weird wink at the end that happened too fast, I think, to even really process what was going on. Yeah, like his name was nothing actually. Like it was no iteration of a Robin, right? Like it was just a random. It was just the, this guy who happened to have Joseph Gordon-Levitt happened to have the name Robin, and Joseph Gordon-Levitt would be a believably interesting, like kind of protege, and was. But they either should have done it or not done it. But the half measure was just sort of weird. I don't know. It was confusing. It was better, I think, than the Zack Snyder vision, where all we saw was Robin's costume with like blood splattered. Oh, like right. you let your family die in the bat cave, which I can't believe they did. That's just like it was it was just like a classic uh Zack Snyder, really dark, brooding, angry move to do. And it was it sucked a lot. I'm actually with Anna. I, I think I think I like Batman Forever more than most people do, mostly because the performances are so insane and it's just it's a car wreck I can't turn away from. And I think that Chris O'Donnell is like a believably angsty mid nineties badass rebel motorcycle riding skateboarding dude. And I wanted to be him so bad when I was a little kid watching that movie. So I've got a kind of a soft spot in my heart for Robin in that movie. Batman and Robin, I have no love for that movie. I, I can't go there. I think it helped that uh, when Batman Forever came out, he sort of looked like uh, Matchbox 20 lead singer Rob Thomas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who, you know, when you were super cool in the late 90s, obviously you listened to Matchbox 20. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. And it's like, and it's weird because I also have a ton of love for Batman Forever because I think mostly because I haven't seen it since like 1998. The perfect amount of time. Yeah. And it came out on VHS when I was in, I think, eighth grade. So it was like just in time for me to be like blown away by how funny Jim Carrey was, how awesome the action was. And I had a massive crush on Nicole Kidman that continues to this day. Yeah, I forgot Nicole Kidman, the queen, Nicole Kidman's in yeah. this movie. Like, yeah. yeah. How can you, that's the crazy thing is even though those movies sucked, like the cast they got were crazy. Like Tommy Lee Jones's two face, just, you know, hamming it up at every opportunity. A lot of great stories about how poorly Tommy Lee Jones got along with really everybody, but particularly Jim Carrey, including one great, line in which Jim Carrey went up to introduce himself and Tommy Lee Jones refused to shake his hand and said, I'm sorry, I just hate you so much. I cannot sanction your buffoonery. 
Oh, it's very <laughs> which, which explains a lot about the movie and again why I love it so much. And Val Kilmer. No, yeah. yeah. Val, it's okay. all there. Yeah. This yeah. this movie has it's at least as good as it's, it's much better than the Zack Snyder movie. Uh, I need to rewatch it. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say is I think back to your original question. I mean, I think part of the reason that like we haven't really seen Robin on the screen is because the like the versions of Batman that we're getting on screen like don't have room for him to have any kind of like actual relationship or like human emotion. Part of that is a function of you know who's directing these movies. Like Christopher Nolan is obviously an amazing director, but I don't think he's like particularly adept at mining the depths of human love. And I mean, we saw that in Dark Knight Rises, Um, you know, that movie is great and everyone's performance is great and Anne Hathaway is great in it. But the least believable thing uh, is less like that a man named Bane exists and more that Batman and Catwoman fall in love. I do think like Batman's role as kind of a parent figure, a father figure for Robin um, just doesn't fit with most of the visions we have on screen, including I would say like the Tim Burton versions, too. It's just like it's hard to shoehorn any kind of familial bond into those those visions, which are primarily about kind of the darkness and the fear. There were plans for Robin to make an appearance in the Tim Burton movies. Uh, actually, Damon Wayans was like on deck to be Robin, but then it changed hands after Batman Returns, and that just never happened, unfortunately, because that would be something worth seeing. But we'll get into a little more of Robin's very long, very complicated history next in our recorded segment. There are five pillars to the character of Batman. This isn't just an opinion, at least it's not my opinion. This was the theory put forth by Glenn Weldon, an NPR contributor and comic book expert. In his book, The Cape Crusade, he theorizes that most Batman fans get stuck thinking about Batman in terms of just three or four of the possible pillars, and that's why so many of them have a hard time accepting changes to the character. Comic book fans are a notoriously temperamental bunch who break out into hives anytime a favorite character just doesn't fit their preconceived notion. And it's particularly thorny with Batman, a guy just about everyone has some sort of pet version of. For the first year of Batman's existence, only four of these pillars were in place. There was Batman the hero, suiting up for his one-man crusade against crime. There was Batman the detective, with a deductive prowess closely modeled after Sherlock Holmes. There was Batman the Ninja, a world-class expert in hand-to-hand combat. And finally, Batman the Billionaire, a debonair businessman with the deepest pockets in town. This is enough for most people, and indeed has more or less served as the mold for most iterations of Batman in comics, on TV, and in film. But there is a fifth pillar, often neglected, without which the rest of Batman doesn't quite work. It's been a controversial one, both for fans, parents, and even the U.S. government, but it's ended up being inseparable from the character. One year after Batman's creation in Detective Comics, the creative team was hitting a groove. Their dark, avenging Shadow of the Night was a bona fide hit, but writer Bill Finger had a problem. He wanted to showcase Batman's dizzying detective skills, but Batman was a loner without anyone to explain his deductive reasoning to. Like I said, Finger had modeled Batman after Sherlock Holmes, and he realized that his Batman needed a Dr. Watson, an audience stand-in to be dazzled by the Dark Knight's brilliance. Bob Kane was Batman's co-creator, and he smelled a marketing opportunity. Comic books were a hit with kids, so why not give them someone with whom they could identify? Not just an audience stand-in, but an actual surrogate, a protege, who could help lighten the comic's dour mood, give Batman a more relatable side, and, it was widely hoped around the offices, convince parents that Batman's violent adventures still had a kid-friendly angle. It was a new young artist named Jerry Robinson who threaded the needle. Inspired by famed illustrator N.C. Wyeth's pictures of Robin Hood, he sketched a costume with a medieval flair, a tunic, pixie boots, tights, and gave it the bright colors of a trapeze artist to offset Batman's somber tones. And in keeping with the Robin Hood motif, he titled his drawing simply Robin, the Boy Wonder. Maybe you've seen the cover that introduces Robin, leaping right through a hoop Batman's holding. The sensational character find of 1940, blares the headline, Robin, the Boy Wonder. The bombastic tone didn't die down on page one. 
The Batman, that amazing, weird figure of the night, takes under his protecting mantle an ally in his relentless fight against crime. Introducing in this issue an exciting new figure whose incredible gymnastic and athletic feats will astound you. A laughing, fighting young daredevil who scoffs at danger like the legendary Robin Hood whose name and spirit he has adopted, and so on and so forth. In retrospect, Batman's creative team didn't really think things through. They'd hoped the inclusion of a younger sidekick would mollify worried parents, but sending a skimpily dressed boy into battle with gun-wielding maniacs and psychotic clowns alongside a mysterious, wealthy bachelor was perhaps not every parent, pastor, and teacher's preferred reading material for their kids either. But sales-wise, it worked. Robin's debut issue sold twice as many as issues the previous month had, And so a fifth and final pillar of Batman's character fell into place, one that has angered fans and apparently baffled filmmakers, Batman as a father. The story is pretty well known. Dick Grayson is a member of a family of trapeze artists known as the Flying Graysons, but their manager refuses to pay off the mob in a Gotham City stop. He retaliates by murdering all but young Dick, who is taken in by Bruce Wayne, who sees a chance to give a young orphan the direction and mentorship he himself had never had. Together, they become an inseparably dynamic duo in the pop culture canon. Batman and Robin flows off the tongue as easily as Laurel and Hardy or Simon and Garfunkel. It became an indispensable part of the Batman story, and though it's been replicated by the likes of Batgirl and Catwoman to current Batman sidekicks like The Signal, Red Robin, and Batwing, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson remain the quintessential superhero duo. Throughout the 60s and 70s, as Marvel Comics slowly overtook DC as America's premier comic book company, a phrase was coined by Stan Lee that has guided a lot of superhero comics ever since, the illusion of change. The idea is to shake up the status quo without ever actually shaking it up. This is why characters come back to life, romantic interests fade, Peter Parker is still a bachelor making ends meet in Queens, and Lex Luthor is never going to actually stay in jail for any appreciable amount of time. Things rarely actually change in superhero comics, for most people. But for whatever reason, Dick Grayson has changed. In 1964, he became the leader of a group of sidekicks like the Green Arrow's Ward Speedy and the all-but-forgotten Wonder Girl, known as the Teen Titans. In 1984, he pretty much gets sick of playing second fiddle to Batman, who wouldn't after 44 years, and takes on his own identity as Nightwing, a name inspired by an old Kryptonian urban myth Superman had once related to him. As Nightwing, Dick Grayson relocated to the nearby city of Bloodhaven, later established as his hometown and a more economically depressed version of Gotham. The mantle of Robin has changed hands over the years, from Jason Todd to Tim Drake to Stephanie Brown to, currently, Bruce Wayne's illegitimate son, Damien, But Dick Grayson himself isn't Robin anymore, and hasn't been in over 30 years. He's grown up into an adult, had a slew of his own solo comics, and even become notorious among fans for frequently subverting superhero comics' obsession with pandering to the male gaze, twisting his body into all manner of seductive shapes in a skin-tight suit. But, through it all, he's never really escaped Batman's shadow. Even in these days, he's less a sidekick and more a mentee who still frequently reaches out to his old chum for advice. Because Batman as a father is really Batman trying to be for someone else what nobody ever was for him. A savior. We talked about Robin a lot this week in our uh, text thread. Where do you think, for Dick Grayson, where do you think he's the most compelling? Do you think there is a compelling version of Robin as like the fun, like youthful sidekick who's like saying, holy macaroni, Batman, and throw it in? Or is he more of like a brooding partner? Or do you like Nightwing? Do you just like Dick Grayson on his own? Man, I don't know. That's a good question. I I think the thing with Dick is that he's never really existed as a front and center character for me. He's always been in the background of Batman's books. I, I've never invested much uh, into like his actual books. So I, I like I get the significance to the DC universe as a whole, uh, but much to his dismay, he'll always be part of the Bat family to me. Uh, he'll always be the original Robin, and he'll always kind of be this like Batman light character to your question i when i started reading grace and i really resonated with that more because 
like while like very early on you get a connection to Batman, it still kind of removes him from this his Nightwing uniform, and you get a very very much like a spy slash secret agent book out of it, which I just I, I liked a lot more versus like the you know much more like superhero uh superhero and granted like i didn't get to finish the series i just like i really liked what i got through on the grace and like spy thriller front versus like his more comic booky superhero so uh grayson is a series that came out a few years ago in which uh dick grayson gets recruited by a very man from uncle-esque spy agency and he becomes basically a, a soldier of fortune, spy for hire. No, not a lot of superhero antics in it. Uh, it's kind of just a Mission Impossible type book. And it's really, really good. It's uh, plotted by Tom King, who's one of uh, who we stand for on this podcast. Uh, the art is really great. And I think it's the, further, it's the most any comic has probably done to remove Dick Grayson from the Batman shadow Batman is a very tangential part of the book. And I think it works for the book's benefit a lot. I think that what's really good about Grayson too, in regards to like the lack of Batman in it is that it's still teased enough to like, you see the, you know, kind of the journey of Dick Grayson, you know, for him, like leaving the role of Nightwing and doing something completely different, but he's still like in, in talks with Batman, uh, throughout it, but it's done in like a very quiet kind of way. And you kind of see like how he relies on him in a kind of a fatherly figure, like his guidance and his influence, but he's breaking out totally on his own. Cause I think even as Nightwing, it was still part of the Bat family. It gives Dick a lot of agency in the sense that he reaches out to Batman for help on his own terms instead of Batman swooping in as a protector and a sensei and a teacher throughout his entire career it's it's good it, it, it's a really good book and if you're interested in a a superhero story that isn't strictly about superheroes then grayson is a great one and we'll have a link to it in the show notes have any of you read any of the other like have you read any of the comics in which dick grayson is actually robin because those are actually it's been a while now it's been since 1984 that dick grayson was robin for real yeah i was, I was thinking about that because like i've never actually like I've never known him as Robin. Like I get that he's like kind of the default one. Like when you go back to the original Adam West uh, series or sure, uh, on TV. Yeah. yeah. Or the movies, but like I have such trouble. Like, I don't know if comic book elitists will have trouble swallowing this, but like, I hate reading really old comic books just because they're, they're so hard to like the the dialogue is just so hard to like actually like read and get through so yeah i don't really spend much time with like old school batman and robin so i haven't actually like i don't think the characterization would even match up so dick grayson to me is nightwing like i get that he was robin once but like he is you know he is nightwing yeah it's interesting because i think in like pop culture dick grayson will kind of always be robin probably a little bit because of the Adam West show, a little bit because of the Joel Schumacher movies. But in reality, he he hasn't been Robin for a long time. Although he was, his story, his origin story was retold in uh, 1999 in Batman Dark Victory, which is written by Jeff Loeb and illustrated by Tim Sale. Uh, Jeff Loeb has written some good, really good comics and written some comics that I really don't like. But Dark Victory completed his trilogy, uh, a trilogy that started off with Batman the year one and then continued through Batman the long Halloween and Batman dark victory is very good. It's very much a crime story. Um, it's sort of, stru- sort of structured like a mob story, but it does retell the story of how Robin became of how Dick Grayson became Robin. It does make him very young and it does. It's, it does its darndest to sell this 12 year old kid as a believable crime fighter and sell Batman's reasoning for bringing him for adopting this kid and turning him into a crime fighter. And it, it comes pretty close to working mostly thanks to Tim sales artwork, which I've always really loved. And I don't know if you, have you guys read dark victory? Am I the only one who's talking about it here? I haven't read it. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah, I haven't either. You should read it. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's been on my list. Ryan, you read a lot of, you read some nightwing this week. Yeah. So, uh, the guy who wrote most of, like, I know Tom King plotted it, but the guy who did most of the writing on the Grayson series was Tim Seeley. And when DC relaunched their universe with Rebirth, which I think by and large, all of us 
here have been pretty big fans of most of the stuff that's come out under that uh, umbrella. Tim Seeley continued writing a Nightwing standalone series. And I've been really surprised just in reading, you know, reading a bunch of comics, getting ready for this podcast, like how much I've liked uh, the Nightwing standalone. Um, like Chris, I've always, you know, kind of known Nightwing in the background. Um, probably the most, you know, the most times I've ever read anything with him were in big Batman crossover events. And then after Batman died, when there was the battle for the cowl under Grant Morrison's run after final crisis, um, and he took over uh, being Batman for a while. To me, the most interesting thing with Nightwing and Dick Grayson in general is when it, he's effectively used as a foil for Batman um, and when Batman is used as a foil for him. And I think that's something that Seeley's current run is doing really well, where you see pretty clearly there's a, you know, there's a line both in training as well as approach to crime fighting that you can trace pretty easily from Batman to Nightwing. But uh, Nightwing, like, pretty clearly is his own person um, and does, you know, has his own kind of moral compass and is, like, kind of uncomfortable with how Batman does things. And and I think that's something that's really interesting that I think some of the more effective pieces I've read with Nightwing do is present uh, Nightwing as a way to expose some of the really big flaws in Batman that you kind of overlook um, if you're just reading Batman for fun. Whereas, like, Batman is like kind of a crappy friend and like kind of a crappy person to like be around. Um, and he's like, you know, a scary person who doesn't trust anybody. Um, and you know, a person who, whose entire life is dedicated to making sure that he inspires fear in people and dedicates his life to becoming a symbol as opposed to a man. So I think it's really interesting when, you know, and, and this is where maybe I, maybe I'm staking out on my own Island here, but you know, I actually think that's why having Dick Grayson be this 12-year-old kid who gets adopted, like, works really well because that's, you know, this vulnerable, like, innocent kid who's gone through this, like, unspeakable tragedy, I think really provides, like, an important contrast to, like, to where the reader can see, like, how far, like, how far into the darkness Bruce Wayne has gone. And then, like, helps both bring Bruce Wayne out, but then also like helps channel his like own or like Dick Grayson can channel his own grief into something really productive and, you know, find some healing from that like huge trauma in it. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Um, I just think, you know, a lot of times, like in a lot of nineties comics, they just like, didn't get at that stuff. So instead <laughs> they just gave him a mullet and Pretty let cool him mullet. be super mad that Azrael killed people. Well, to piggyback off what Ryan said, uh, I, I did read Rebirth, well, part of Rebirth. Um, it, I'm really enjoying it. It's 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 good. Uh, I feel like Tim Seeley's got a really good pulse on the character and does a good job with it. Um, and there's a part in Grayson, too, where, you know, there's a, a, a few parts where he's teamed up with Superman and Superman tells him, you know, there's a reason why Bruce worked with you. And he says, because you're the light to his dark, you're the trust to his suspicion. And like, I feel like it's something that Batman was aware of and Dick, but I think it's what made him such like a, you know, made him work together at first as like a father son. And then it eventually became like a partnership and a, and a kind of a, a friendship, at least as far as Bruce Wayne is capable of having, you know, a friendship. And I think that's the best contrast that you can draw between Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson is that Bruce Wayne is like at his core, a good person, but he's not a very nice person and it's hard to imagine anybody like and i think when he's written at his best you realize that he he has he still has a lot of unprocessed trauma from losing his parents whereas dick grayson has has processed a lot of his trauma and he's found family and in a lot of ways that's because of bruce wayne because he had he had a, a father figure and he had some guidance from people like bruce and and alfred and and even the teen titans who he joined to sort of help him uh, find a new emotional core and, and resolve a lot of the what he the loss that he suffered, and so when these these two can be played off each other, you realize that Batman may be the best there is at what he does in the DC universe, but Dick Grayson is is a maybe a better human being in a lot of ways, and uh, and that makes for a really intriguing characterization, especially when you're reading some of these Nightwing comics. I'm curious, especially for Ryan and Hannah, for the parents, have you guys dipped into the Teen Titans Go TV series at all for the kids? I know it skews really young. 
I have. Uh, my uh, soon-to-be four-year-old likes it, mostly because I was like, hey, we're going to watch this tonight. <laughs> uh, because most four-year-olds get stuck on stuff that uh, he only wants to watch over and over again. But it is like like very funny and has like a lot of jokes that like go way over the way over his head but he still thinks it's funny one of my favorite gags and like i thought about this as we were preparing to do this episode is so the the robin in the teen titans goes dick grayson so there's one episode where there's time travel they like go forward in time to the future and they go into like and he like finds himself and it's nightwing like living alone and it's like he lives alone, which Robin thinks is super cool, but he like has nothing in his fridge except like I think a slice of cold pizza and like a bottle of water. And Robin is like horrified <laughs> that that's like the coolest thing he could come up with as an adult. So there's like there's a lot of like really funny meta commentary in there if you're a fan of like the DC comics. But yeah, I mean, I know that movie's coming out this summer, and I'm I'm sure it's going to be really funny. I would say I'm like pretty on board with it. There's a lot. Of, I'm looking at the voice cast right now. Nicholas Cage finally gets to be Superman in a movie, which is he was good back when Tim Burton was briefly going to direct the Superman movie. Nick Cage was his pick for it, but also Halsey as Wonder Woman, and of course Will Arnett as Deathstroke, and Jimmy Kimmel gets to be Batman in this one. And Lil Yachty as the Green Lantern. So great voice cast across the board. I guess I will see it, but I feel like I feel like I'm not really the the target audience for a Teen Titans Go movie. I think based on if it's like the TV show, I suspect you will enjoy it very much, even though you'll be the oldest push person in the theater. The trailer I enjoyed more than I thought, and I, this would be far from the first time I've been the oldest person. In I theater. didn't even know there was going to be a Teen Titans. Oh, get movie. the kids on board. Well, I, Piper has no interest, I'm sure, because that's my five-year-old daughter. Uh, but I have a three-year-old son who I'm sure would like eat it up. But like that's why I'm, I, I know that like once I start him on it, it's just going to become an obsession for him. Like, he's already really into Pokemon right now. And I can't get him off that train. Like, it's like every day he wakes up and he wants to watch Pokemon XYZ. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's it's killing me. It's killing me. So I, I'm... I'm like trying to find him all these like really weird, obscure European cartoons on Netflix. <laughs> Parenting sounds really difficult. To culture him. But like I, every time I'm going through like the TV guide on cable, I see Teen, uh, teen Titans. And I'm like, oh, I really want him to watch it, but he's just not ready yet. So I'm biding my time. But maybe, maybe with the pressure of a movie coming out, Maybe we can figure out a way to teach him some kind of like self control. Find a way for to moderate, like introduce him to a moderate level of Teen Titans. I, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll come back like in a few weeks. I'm like, hey guys, it happened, and like I haven't gotten any sleep in like you know three nights because <laughs> Hudson wakes me up at two a.m. and wants to talk about you know whatever about the show. That's the kind of son I have. So he's obsessive like his father. And he's not so. Anyway. I, this is taking a different turn. Yeah, this <laughs> sounds like a different podcast, but best of luck. But I'm I'm really intrigued by it because obviously I want my kids to love comics and it seems like a great, you know, first kind of introduction to those characters. There is also going to be, uh, for you and Justin and the rest of us, there is going to be evidently a live action Titan series on this upcoming DC streaming situation that we still don't have a lot of details on, but there is going to be a, a, a live action show, probably more in line with like the CW verse with, with Green Arrow and The Flash. Um, and that one's cast and, and it's getting ready to go. Although people were not super thrilled with some of the early set photos of the costumes because they looked like pretty like mid-level cosplay. You need to send us these pictures. Oh, I, I'll I make sure I'll put them onto the show notes for the, for this podcast, but I don't want to, I don't talk too much about a visual, like visual news that we can't talk about over the show because we're, we're in an audio medium, but, uh, I would say it looks a little rocky probably just because DC launching its own streaming app. They just don't have a lot of money. Yeah. I don't know these. Yeah. The photos are so bad. <laughs> it, <laughs> I'm looking at them. I'm looking at them now and it, yeah, it's just, it's a real, sometimes it's, things look a little better on screen than the behind the set photos, but man, it would have to be a pretty dramatic. The camera would have to really change things for this to look believably good. I don't know. It looks inhumans level. Oof, don't bad. even say it. That's, that's just mean. 
I know. It's libelous. I do. And if we were going to end on a high note, I would say that that dipping into, uh, like Hannah said, the Rebirth with Nightwing is, is a really, really good series. I Like you, Chris, I haven't finished the Grayson series yet, um, but I've really liked what I've read of it. And I, I like the sort of... Uh, Mission Impossible vibe that I've gotten from it. And I think Dark Victory is good. There are a lot of really good Dick Grayson comics out there. They're just not always talked about in the same hushed tones that a lot of Batman comics are. But I I think that um, kind of like we talked about in our scripted segment, that Robin is a really important part of Batman. And I think that people who try to run away from Robin's legacy as being part of the whole Batman story end up doing a disservice to the character because he he's a, a great character on his own regards. And it's just never hurts any character to have uh, a friend who they can bounce things off of, which is what Robin is for Batman. So this was a good, I think I texted you guys about this probably more so than any other show we've done before this. I feel like my opinion of a character really improved by researching this episode. I'm looking forward to going and reading more stuff about him. I really wanted you to expand on that because you, you had said this really helped your appreciation of the character. And I've kind of always held Nightwing in a like Daredevil light. That's probably fair. Like yeah. the DC equivalent of Daredevil. So I was just curious, like, yeah, like more of that from you of just like what you really appreciated of like, when you dove into the character? I think that the fandom has, I've told you that there's, there's an online fandom that I think is really, really into Nightwing. He has a lot of super fans and I always kind of looked at them from the outside and I wasn't sure quite what they saw in the character seeing him as a character who is really defined by his relationship to another hero. Cause there isn't really a lot of that in comics. There aren't a lot of characters who um, really exist with a legacy of somebody else's very long, much longer legacy. You have people like the Winter Soldier over at Marvel. Obviously, you have characters like Supergirl and, and the rest of the Bat family, but none of them are as iconic as Dick Grayson is. And so learning, seeing how different writers have tackled that, and I think have often tackled it very well, exploring both the tension of that, how he feels sort of bound to Bruce Wayne, but also his gratitude for it, realizing how much he he really does love uh, Batman and, and he loves what Batman's given to him. I, I think that it's actually been written really, really well a lot. And uh, there's a lot of fertile ground there for people to explore and it's been handled really well. I see what some of the you people who talk about Dick Grayson all the time are talking about. Well, there you go. I'm a fan now. Well, I, I, I think we all did our job. You did your job. And, uh, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. If you like what you heard here, make sure to stop by our Apple Podcast page and uh, give us a positive review and a five-star rating. And uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Cape Town Pod or Facebook at Cape Town Pod. Uh, we want to make sure to say thank you to CM Studios. Uh, Chad and Jesse over there are the ones who keep us sounding good. I also want to give a periodic shout out to our friend Justin Mazel, a uh, friend of the podcast. He's the one who handles all the artwork that you see on Twitter and Facebook. And also to our friend Ryan Ham, who handles all of the music. And that'll wrap it up for this week. I'm Tyler Huckabee. I'm Chris Youngblood. I'm Hannah Mazel. And I'm Ryan Ham. And we'll see you next time. No need for thanks, citizen. Bye.